Hear now the word of the Lord. We're in Acts 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week, we had the luxury of looking at this entire passage as it's printed there in your bulletin, kind of an overview of the passage. Paul has arrived in Athens on his missionary journey. He's by himself. He's left his companions behind. They will join him shortly. Paul will probably be in Athens for about four or five weeks at the most. Then from there, he'll move on down to Corinth. And that's kind of the journey he's on. But while he has time to wait on his uh, companions to arrive, he gets outdoors, takes a tour, enjoys the remnants of what was once the glory of Athens. Athens in its 4th and 5th century BC had glorious days. In the days of Socrates and then his pupil Plato and Plato's student Aristotle and Aristotle's student, Alexander the Great. And when Alexander the Great got through with it, there was no such thing as the glory of Athens anymore in terms of Athens being special because he took the Hellenistic culture throughout the world. Not only that, he completely moved beyond the notions of a small city-states with their particular ethnic and, and ethic. Instead, he moved toward the great eastern domains of Persia, and he created, Alexander the Great did, a worldwide empire. And so now there were great cultural and intellectual centers all over the ancient world. In Rome, to be sure, in Pergam, in Tarsus, in Alexandria, Egypt, and many other places around the world. The world had changed in the 500 years between the glory of Athens, from Thales to Aristotle, to the days of Paul. The only thing that had intervened is there had been a period of time between 341 and 270 BC, 340 and 266 BC, a period in there of about 60 years where two philosophies had kind of coalesced in headquartered in Athens and had dominated the popular mind. These two philosophies are mentioned in our text. They are those of Epicurus and those of the Stoics. Uh, next week, the Lord willing, we'll go to Paul's sermon at the Areopagus and take another look at it, a little more intense look, and we'll see some of the notions and the ideas that were remnants of Greek thought, which had been cooking for 500 years. 
and see how Paul addresses those and teaches the Word of the Lord and preaches to the people there on Mars Hill about the truth concerning God. Paul's really going to have two separate theses. One is here he's saying, you knew God. You just suppressed that knowledge of God and it moved you into idolatry. It gave you a reprobate mind and it moved you into immorality. So all of the discussions about divinity among the the philosophers of Athens and all the discussions of ethics and all the discussions of epistemology, that is knowledge and how you know and how you know what you know and how that you know what you know is so. All of these discussions move in their understanding against that which God has revealed. There's a sense in which the wisdom of the philosophers, the Sophia of the philosophers, had degenerated from great speculation about God and the universe, the cosmos, and how that all things had come into being and how things function and how they move and and all of these great philosophical issues had degenerated down to a group of men that were called the sophists. It was almost a term of derision because what the sophists were, were men who were really just not concerned about a lot of the great ultimate questions. They were just concerned about not the microcosm, but the microcosm. That is, they were concerned about man and how you get by and how you, how you work. Sophia, wisdom, had become a notion for skill. It was basically just how do you get by? How do you get ahead? How do you survive? How do you use the skills that you have and how do you develop your skills of rhetoric and your skills of various things to to move you into a more successful position in life? And these sophists were teaching their doctrines not in the schools of philosophy, but out in the open air. In fact, they were really on opposite sides of the street, as it were, there in Athens. The Epicureans on one side, they were naturalists, they were atheists. They were empiricists. They really didn't see that there was any creator that we need to contemplate and there was no destiny that we need to be concerned about. In fact, they were very practical. They were really concerned about pleasure and pain. You might enjoy something pleasurable, but you need to avoid that which is painful. And even if you do have to endure pain, it's only for the purpose of a greater pleasure later on. And this is the the philosophical mindset of so many, but across the street were the Stoics who had followed the teachings. They claimed Socrates to be their progenitor, although most of the philosophical schools did claim Socrates. But through the years, especially through Zeno in the third century BC, this particular philosophy had developed and it was a more responsible authority in many ways and had things that were more compatible with biblical worldview. In fact, one of the great late Stoics was Seneca, who was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, who had his work mainly in Rome. And some have speculated that Paul and Seneca had a conversation or two when Paul was in Rome in the mid-60s A.D. But regardless of all of this philosophical uh, knowledge and wisdom, Paul would move from Athens to Corinth. And when he would write back to the church at Corinth, in his correspondence with them, he would say, God, in His wisdom, 
does not use wisdom in order for people to know him. Isn't that remarkable? And that's what you see in the emphasis is that God is not found and God is not known through a development of philosophical system, through syllogism and through logic. But God is known by revelation. God unveils Himself. He makes Himself known. And that's what we'll see in just a moment. But I want us to look really at a couple of things. One is Paul reasoned in the synagogue. We, we're very familiar with what Paul's tact was in the synagogue. He took the Holy Scriptures, the parchments, and he would read the passages out of the Old Testament and he would preach Christ to the Jews and to the God-fearers and the proselytes in the synagogue. But here Paul is moved into the agora, the marketplace. And it's interesting that his audience there is every day he would, he would reason with those who happened to be there. Paul's audience here is eclectic. Paul's audience is miscellaneous. I would like to think Paul's audience was probably providential. There were people in that marketplace that was listening to Paul preach that had already been marked out from all eternity for salvation. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed on that occasion like other occasions that are mentioned when the gospel went forth. But Paul is now in the marketplace. And it's in this marketplace and in this outdoor uh, environment where the, so much of the teaching had taken place that he brings to bear that which he had seen in his sightseeing tour. And that was the city was full of idols. Idolatry. The fundamental problem of Athens was men in their wisdom, a half of a millennium of wise men headquartered in teaching in the various schools and academies of Athens. Men, women, people, humanity, by its wisdom, did not come to know God. You just don't know God that way certainly in any saving sense. But Paul's message to them is, you do. You do know God. You just don't recognize that knowledge for what it is. Because you have just enough logic, just enough reason to know where it leads. If there is one true and living God, you are required to submit to Him, to bow before Him, to worship Him, to give Him the glory He is due. And the gospel message goes out to those who are in that particular circumstance. And Paul outlines it very clearly in this very familiar passage, but let me read it for us from Romans Chapter 1, Paul incidentally wrote Romans from Corinth uh, in later point in his ministry, but he was from that same environment in Corinth, having been to Athens there in Greece, in Achaia, southern Greece. He writes in anticipation of a trip to Rome, and this is what he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, that is the cultured and the uncultured, the schooled and the unschooled, the Hellenist and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you at Rome as well, for I am not ashamed of the gospel 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven, from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is a synopsis of what the gospel message is. It's a revelation of the righteousness of God. It's a, really the word is apocalypse. It's an uncovering, an unfolding. It's rolling back the curtain that we can see what the righteousness of God is. And this is not just referring to the righteousness that God has as his attribute. God is a righteous being, but it is that righteousness which God has, that God, righteousness which God requires, and that require, righteousness which he bestows upon us in Christ. Christ is referred to over and over and over in the Old Testament as the righteous one. The Son is the righteous one. He is the one who brings righteousness. And this is what the gospel is. The gospel is not that salvation is an attainment, but it is a bestowal of what God has and what God gives, and that is Christ. And He became sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So that's a good overview of the gospel. And it's from faith to faith. There's a lot of debate about what that means. The one I like best is just looking at the word itself. It is out of faith, ex pistis, and it is toward faith, ice pistis. In other words, it's all of faith. It's faith is all it's considered. Faith is all there is. It is a faith alone gospel. It comes out of faith and it moves to faith. It is apprehended by faith and it is received and applied by faith. There is nothing else that can avail. But then the righteousness of God is not the only thing that's revealed. God reveals something else. He uncovers something else and that is found there in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against that which is not like God Anything that is ungodly, anything that is contrary to, opposed to, outside of God and His character. That has to do with the divine and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is revealed against that immorality and that failure to have right relationships with each other. And so this is an unveiling of the wrath of God. If we see the righteousness of God unveiled, God has also unveiled His wrath. He's let His wrath be known. And here's how that, how that happened consequently. What can be known about God? The whole quest of philosophy was to know. And how do you know? And what do you know? And the, as I mentioned, the Epicureans were empiricists. They were people who went with the senses. So were the Stoics. The Stoics would talk about knowledge as some knowledge being on your fingertips. And then some knowledge, you knew it well enough that it would be in the grasp of your hand. And then others would say knowledge was so well known that it would be not only in the grasp of the hand, but the clenching of the fist and the covering of the hand with the other hand. That's sure knowledge. And we know different things differently. And sometimes the knowledge is vague and distant. 
It's a more of a transcendent reality, but sometimes the knowledge is intimate and it is imminent in our souls. And this, it says, what can be known about God is plain to them. These empiricists of Athens who believe in sense perception, observation, looking at, at it with their eyes, they suppressed the truth. What could be known about God was plain to them. It was that God has pulled back the curtain to where they can see enough about God to be able to know that He exists, that He is wise and ordered, and order was a big issue in the ancient philosophical world, and that He was powerful. They maybe didn't know the mystery of the Trinity. They certainly didn't understand the mystery of godliness. They didn't understand the wonders of God's grace in Jesus Christ, in the incarnation and in His sacrificial death. They certainly were willing to dispute about the bodily resurrection, but they could know that there was a God and the way they would do it was by empirical observation. They could stare into the microscope and they could stare into the telescope. And that's what we're able to do today. When you look into the microscope and you see things that are unbelievably intricate and ordered, the work of a single cell and all of the parts of it and the electrochemical things that are going on, and you say, pure chance, no chance, random, evolutionary, and you stare into the telescope and you see the galaxies beyond the galaxies beyond the galaxies. And you say, always been there. Don't know where it came from. Big bang. And refuse to recognize that above all of this, the intricacy, the order, the design, the vastness, the bigness and the smallness, the way out there and the up close here. And nowhere in any of that is there any evidence that there is a higher, creative, powerful deity. And so you postulate atheism. He says the, that which is, can be known about God is plain because God has showed it to them. That's His evidence. That's what God takes to the bar of human reason. He hands you a universe saying, take a look at this. And so we take a look at it. The skeptical mind, the secular mind, takes a look at it and says, no, don't see any hint of deity anywhere. In fact, I'm going to say further, we'll say the secular mind, that if you find anything in there, you've got a mental problem. You have a mental health problem. Something's wrong with your mind. We may need to re-educate you. If you can look at that which God has revealed, if you can look at that and say, there is a God, 
You may need to have your logic checked. You need to be re-educated. And that's the mindset of the secular age. But the Bible says that God has shown it to them and made it plain to them. But there's something that's happened in the previous verse. They have suppressed the truth. They've taken the truth, the truth of God, the truth about God, the truth about His creation and about the evidence for Him, and they have suppressed it. They've deliberately held it down. For the invisible attributes of God, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. That's the third time in the passage He's talked about the ability to empirically note the evidence for God, His eternal power, His divine nature. There's certainly power in deity. His, his omnipotence can be perceived. Maybe you won't know about His love, His mercy, His goodness, His grace, His forbearance. You won't know about the provision of Christ, but you'll know He's there. There's enough there that if your eyes are what they ought to be, they'll be clearly perceiving it for ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So these Athenians, and let's just forget about the Athenians now. Let's quit beating up on the poor people of the past. Let's talk about the people sitting in the pew. They, we, are without excuse. For although we know God, we do not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Honoring Him as God is to give Him the praise and the glory that's due Him. Whatever you may say about God, you must at least admit that He is there and that He is powerful. That He is, that he is intelligent. And you must realize that evidently all things come from Him. And you must give thanks for His benevolence, His goodness over all the earth. The fact that one day He chose to throw a planet out there in the middle of the space and put something around it called air. Put it just far enough away from the sun that it doesn't burn up. Put it close enough that it doesn't turn into a complete ice cap. And do that within just milli, uh, just inches and inches from where it would be all the difference in the world. Pitch it upon its axis so that it has seasons. Surround it and do all the things that enable it to have human habitation. If you don't recognize that, you become futile in your thinking. Interesting the word futile. Vain, empty. That's the Old Testament word, definitions of the Old Testament word for idols. The idols were vain, Isaiah says. They were empty, they were futile. That's what idolatry is. Let's forget about all the statues and the temples and all the stuff that Paul was looking at, all the rituals that went along with it. They're certainly significant, they're certainly historical, but that's not the essence of idolatry. Idolatry is you find something you can put in place of God. There's an exchange that takes place and that's what happens here. You become futile in the thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Now the light of truth begins to fade and back away and less and less light comes in. 
And where there is no light, and the Bible says God is to his essence, his light. Where there is no light, where there's no knowledge of God, where there's no God shining, where there's no effulgence of the glory of God, which is a description of Christ, the light of the world, hearts become darkened. And so now the capacity to see into the microscope, into the telescope, is diminished. And it's darkening every day, claiming to be wise. They have become fools. That's what happens to us. We become more sophisticated. That's what, that's what wise is. It's soft wisdom. And that's a term that's really, really fluid in the Greek language. Because it's used in so many ways. It's used is a term of description and a term of derision. We speak of a sophomore, second year student in a school. Sophomore is from two words, soft, wise, moron, which means foolish. They're kind of right there between. They've, they've learned just enough their freshman year to think they've really figured things out. But yet, in a larger perspective, they're the biggest fools on earth. In fact, the worst fool is a fool that thinks he knows when he has no clue. Sometimes his ignorance is only exceeded by his arrogance. And that's the condition of our hearts unless we have the light of the gospel, the revelation of God shining forth. Claiming themselves to be wise, they become fools. And then these exchanges start taking place. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images Icons, statues, and all, and all the rest, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Because mankind does not obey the first commandment, that is having God in His proper place, as all-powerful, eternal, etc., now mankind begins to break the second commandment and make graven images putting things in the place of God. And there's no place up to go. So he goes down. He comes down to the mortal man, to the birds, the animals, and the reptiles. And then we see, along with these exchanges that are taking place, we see in God abandoning the person. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Idolatry, causes God to abandon us, to give up on us. There's a lot of preaching of cheap grace that says God will just, He's waiting there and He'll wait for all eternity just waiting on you to make a decision, waiting on you to come to Him. Well, God is patient and the invitation is open and the gospel offer is free. But God has a, a place in His mind where He says, my spirit will not always strive with men. And there's a place in which God says, you know, I've, I've had enough with this culture or with this nation or with this family or with this person. They've said no to me. They've defied me. They've cursed me. They've ignored me. They've denied me so long. The measure of iniquity is full. And I'm going to give them up. Interesting thing, God doesn't have to come out with wrath and fury with lightning bolts flashing and fire raging and brimstone scattered all about 
to punish us for our sins. All he has to do is just back up and leave us alone. Leave us to our own thoughts, our own interpretations, our own devices, our own energies and our own inclinations, our own lust and our own desires. Just take the restraint of his wonderful spirit off and just, my spirit will not always strive. Just back away. And that's what happens. God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. You go from idolatry to immorality in short order. There's a short circuit between idolatry, not wishing to retain God in the imagination, not wishing to know about God and retain God. Almost everybody in this room has lived long enough to see that happen in the American culture, haven't you? We have been in a determination since the 50s, or even before that, philosophically, but the 50s culturally, to try to push God back and away and out, and if not completely deny Him, at least ignore Him in every facet of our culture. And then we sit around and moan about the incredible immorality and debauchery and violence and hatred and all that we see in our culture. They go hand in hand. If you don't have God, you don't have godliness in a person, in a culture, in a family, in a society, in a nation. And that's what's happened. God has given us over to the lust of our hearts, to impurity, to the dishonor of our body. We've exchanged the truth of God, the truth about God, and that is another way of saying it is the true God, the God who is truth. We've exchanged it for a lie. So now we're talking about wisdom and knowledge and philosophy and reason and thinking and the, the, the cogitating of the, of the human brain and the exercise of the frontal lobe and all of the things that we're so proud of. And where does it get us? It brings us into a place where we find believable, plausible, irrefutable, an absolute lie. And that's what we've exchanged. And we've worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now I'm going to just assign one creature. <laughs> Ancient idolatry had all kinds of idols to all kinds of totem. But there's one creature we worship, and that's human, humanity. That's what humanism is. It's man is the measure of all things. We're all, everything we do has to do with the human, who we are, what are our rights, what are our privileges, what is our nature. And in every case, we've come up with an alternative lie to what God says about us. God says we're a special creation of God at a moment in time with a particular human body that was created by God and infused with the, the breath of life. We've exchanged that truth for the lie that, well, we just evolved from a, another species and one before that. And all the things that we know in our anthropology and in our psychology are coming to us again and again about our behavior. God made male and female, and we say, no, there's an alternative to that. We're believing now lies about basic gender identification. And that's exactly what the passage says. 
that in here that God gives us over to gender distortion, gender deviation, gender confusion. And you can read all about it. I'm not going to read it for you, but it's in verse 26 and 27. It says, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. They didn't want to retain God in their knowledge. They didn't want to come to what they knew. The primal truth that had come down through the ages. Oh, by the way, have you ever thought about, somebody woke up when I changed it. Have you ever thought about the time sequence? Do you realize that Abraham, before that Noah and Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, and all of those biblical men and most of the writing prophets, especially those that were around the 7th and 8th century BC, were already on the scene Reveal the Word of God in massive literature in the Old Testament Scriptures and had died and been in their graves for centuries before these philosophers showed up on the scene. 900 B.C. is the reign of King Solomon, which was the glory days of ancient Israel, and the wisdom that came to Solomon, which were inscripturated in the Proverbs and, and Ecclesiastes and other places. That's before... Thales, that's before any of the older philosophers. Then we come all the way through the years and come to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and all the rest of them. And then another 200-something years, we finally get Epicurus and Zeno and some of those guys, Seneca. Think about it. God's revelation was out there. Hundreds of years inscripturated in the parchments and treasured. The oracles of God preceded the oracle of Delphi. Willingly ignorant of what God has made known to them. And the Bible says they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Didn't pay any attention to the prophets of Israel or any of that revelation. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he says, they, once again it's we, are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And I'm not going to read the list, but there's a sin list. Paul has several sin lists. He has one in 2 Corinthians. There's one in Galatians. There's two or three other shorter ones. There's a couple in Romans beyond this. Some sin lists. And he lists 21 vices. The most the philosophers come up with were four virtues. They were the supreme virtues. And they had a difficult time with one of them, and that was the virtue of love. They couldn't figure that one out. They didn't even have much use for the word agape. And that's the kind of love that is talked about all through Scripture. It harkens all the way back to the love of God and the love that we have for each other in the great commandment. How far beneath and behind and below, how retarded is the wisdom of man? And God's got our number. He sees that when we give up God and do not retain Him and do not honor His, His deity and do not give Him the glory, we are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. I said I wasn't going to read them. I'm going to. Here they are. Covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Does that sound like politics? 
gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Are there any children in here? Yeah, disobedient to parents is a result of not giving God the glory that He deserves. Foolish. That's the whole point is what is wisdom, what is, what is reason, what is understanding. Faithless, heartless, ruthless. And here's the verdict. Though they know God's decree. Unregenerate people are not ignorant of God's morality. It's placed in nature, it's placed in the conscience, and in many cultures it's placed on the wall or on a printed place that's seen publicly. They know God's decree, and here it is. Those who practice such things deserve to die. Every sin carries within it the death penalty. Sometimes we read the Old Testament and we say, my goodness, look at all those Look at all those passages that have the death penalty. Passages about uh, being uh, insurrectionist, uh, committing adultery. Death penalty? Every sin has the death penalty. The Mosaic law was, was, was an act of forbearance and mercy on the part of God. He didn't call for the immediate death penalty but ultimately, every sin carries that. They know the decree of God that those who practice such things deserve to die. But they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice. It's not enough that you do the kind of morality, but what you're looking for is you're looking for approval. You want to have your right to do it, and you want to be exonerated in your committing of these things. In other words, you want to be justified in your sin. And the whole gospel story is how a just God can justly justify the unjust. Lord willing, we'll talk more about this later. <laughs>